Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Well, one of my favorite traditions growing up was watching movies at my grandparents' home. So after dinner, we'd sit down and we'd select a VHS from their vast collection. I mean vast, like it was in the cellar, there were like over a thousand of them. And one of my fond memories of those evenings is that frequently when the plot was beginning to develop in the movie and as pieces were coming together, my dad would stand up and say, okay, kids, coats, let's go home. And we knew his shtick, tell him, stop teasing dad, sit down. Of course, we're not ready. But he, he did it anyway. It was, it was part of his shtick. So he saw how zoned in we were to the plot line. He sensed the right spot to just kind of say, time to go, kids. And we all understand that joke because all, we all understand stories, right? A, a good author or script writer will set a scene He'll develop characters, he'll stage a conflict, and then he'll increase the drama until the story climaxes in a brilliant series of events. And so it doesn't sit right with us if we just see the beginning of the story, the introduction of conflict, but then miss the final conclusion. It's like playing seven notes on, of an octave on the piano, but leaving out the eighth. We need to know the rest of the story. You can use this mic if you want to. That's, that's audience clapping. There we go. Well, during this season of Advent, the anticipation for the coming of Christ, we can often focus on Jesus as this baby in the manger, and that's important. But if we stop at the manger and, and neglect the rest of the story, we miss the climax of the whole plot. We can be moved 
by the nativity, by this introduction, but we can miss the big picture. So this morning in the passage Ashley has just read for us, let's zoom in, especially in verses 2 through 6. Let's see the whole point of Advent, of Jesus' coming to earth. Three things. First, the humiliation of Christ. Second, the substitution of Christ. And then third, the submission of Christ. So first, the humiliation of Christ. So uh, this second half of Isaiah, so chapters 40 through 66 in Isaiah, include four servant songs. These are songs written about a servant of the Lord. In In Isaiah 42, we see that this servant would have God's spirit upon him and would bring forth justice to the nations. And this is the fourth of the, and final of those servant songs and extends from the last three verses of Isaiah 52 all the way through Isaiah 53. And, and although you read certain parts of Isaiah and it calls this servant Israel, sort of an idealized version of God's people, as we read the rest of Scripture, we find clearly that this text points ultimately to Christ. So you might remember what Nathan read for us at the outset of our service from 1 Peter 2. There, Peter refers several times back to Isaiah 53 and attributes those words to Christ. Uh, In Acts chapter 8, an Ethiopian who doesn't know a clue about the gospel is reading this text, reading about a sheep led to the slaughter from Isaiah 53. And, And then Philip, the evangelist, comes along and uses that text as kind of a springboard to preach Christ to him. In Matthew chapter 8, we read about Jesus performing miracles of healing, and then we read, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Isaiah 53. So as we read this portion of Isaiah's prophecy, hundreds of years before Jesus was even born, we see it finally and fully fulfilled in Christ. So what can we learn about Christ from this text? We'll look there at the end of verse 2. Speaking of Christ, this ultimate servant of God, Isaiah writes, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Jesus was a man, and he wasn't a pop figure or a politician, or a movie star. He was without majesty, without a particularly beautiful appearance. He had not always been that way, quite the opposite, actually. So in in heaven, as this second person of the Godhead, Jesus had had all majesty, all beauty, everything that is desirable was found in him. But he left it all. He gave it up. You might think of Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says that though Jesus was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped and held onto, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. The the technical term for this amazing truth is incarnation, a, a word that means putting flesh on. So Jesus, this truly second person of the Godhead, truly God, he had all the riches and majesty of God, willingly took on himself flesh, humanity. The God of the universe took on flesh, dwelt among man. And because of that, Jesus, the great king, suffered like you, suffered like me. 
was despised, was rejected, new sorrow, new grief. That word for grief can also involve sickness. In other words, Jesus was, Jesus was weak. From the highest position of power to the lowest manger of weakness, like you and me. That's the core of the gospel, family. Jesus was not Superman, a human with a sprinkling of otherworldly materials. I don't really know Superman's genesis, but I think that's right. Jesus wasn't like that. Neither was he God in disguise, a kind of a, a spirit taking on an illusion of flesh. No, he was truly God and truly man. Without that truth, the gospel crumbles, as we saw before in that responsive reading. And this wonder, this incarnation, is as one author, James Usher, puts it, the highest pitch of God's wisdom, goodness, power, and glory. So maybe you can remember being at a movie. Maybe it was even a movie this past weekend for some of you. Where, where the tension built with this succession of scenes and the volume and the music and the, the plot getting thicker and you were kind of shifting your seat with excitement. Uh, maybe you can remember being at a concert where all the elements of the show just kind of came to a head and converged in this great crescendo and you rose to your feet impulsively to uh, applaud. That's the incarnation. That's God's great crescendo. It's the storyline of history coming to a deafening climax. Think about it, church. Jesus, this occupier of the throne on high, becoming weak like us. I love how the early church father Augustine puts it. It's pronounced Augustine, folks. Whether we're from Florida or not. He says, man's maker was made man. That he ruler of the stars might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that the truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher be bit beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. Church, see Jesus' humiliation forecasted here in Isaiah 53. See this, this mouth that spoke creation into existence, that gave breath to the very lungs of those Roman executioners. See that mouth remaining silent See Jesus humbling himself to take on your weakness. I think we can often fall into thinking of either God is like incredibly imminent, that is like really close to us, or incredibly transcendent, that is just hard to understand, totally above us, elsewhere. The incarnation says both are true. God is so much greater, so much holier than us. But in Christ, he's condescended to be made like us. Jesus. Jesus. Humiliated and despised. Why? Well, let's see the substitution of Christ. Because if you look at all the things we see about Jesus here, 
So he had no form, no majesty, no beauty. He was despised, rejected, a man of sorrows, a bearer of grief, a carrier of sorrows. He was stricken, smitten, and afflicted. If you took all those truths of his humiliation, you'd be left with a wonderful picture of a suffering servant. But I wonder what exactly would make that picture of Jesus so much different than other heroes in history. I mean, how would that picture differentiate Jesus from, say, Martin Luther King Jr., or Gandhi, or Lincoln? Men who stood for good, for the most part, but were killed and martyred for what they stood for. For many, Christmas is a celebration of the birth of a good man, a martyr who preached peace and then died for peace, like Martin Luther King. But if that's all Jesus is, he's not much of a savior. If that's all Jesus is, then Christmas is kind of like President's Day. Just this marker of the birthday of a good person. Jesus, George Washington, famous man. We, we remember him gratefully. But church, thank God that's not all who Jesus is. Because as we read in Isaiah, we don't see Jesus' humiliation only. But we see the point of it. Because not only did he bear griefs, but he bore our griefs. Not only did he carry sorrows, but he carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions, cursed for our iniquities. When we begin to see Jesus' humiliation and persecution in that context, in our context, it's a whole different ballgame. See, Jesus never committed sin. He, he was weak like us, yes. He, he suffered like us, yes, but he never sinned like us. And so he actually deserved reward and not death. His chastisement, his, his punishment, his wounds, those shouldn't have been his to bear. Those should have been ours. And yet he took those things, and if you look there in verse 4, I believe, in verse 5, that what do we get in return? Peace. Healing. There's a transaction taking place. This is what the church often calls, and these are big words, but they're important words, substitutionary atonement. Jesus shed his blood as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, yes, but he did so as a substitute. Everything he suffered, he suffered for sinners, for us. The punishment he took, he took for us. He stepped into our place, took our penalty, was crushed for us. Christian, Jesus is your substitute. He went to the cross for you. I wonder how that should impact us this morning as Christians. I wonder how often you look at the cross and you think, that should have been me. Christian, how seriously do you view your sin? How heavy to you is the rebellion of your heart against God? That, that second glance of lust that outburst of bitter words towards a loved one, that 
unwillingness to forgive someone who's hurt you, that discontentment that gnaws away at you for a better job, a better home, a better spouse. How serious is that sin to you? Is it something you can just deal with? I mean, it's part of who you are. God hasn't given you an opportunity to turn away from it, so he just must mean for you to live with it. Is it something you can just shrug off? I mean, everyone struggles with something, right? Get off my back. Christian brother and sister, as you search your heart and you see the sin that indwells, pull your eyes away from yourself and fix them on the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. It was your sin that put him on that cross. The Son of God hung in agony for you. Your sin is incredibly serious. Sometimes in our services, we sing the old hymn from 1804 by Thomas Kelly called Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted. It takes directly from Isaiah 53, and that's one of the applications he brings to bear in his hymn. In the third verse, he writes, You who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, Son of man and Son of God. Christians, see the weight of your sin. And then see it cast on the cross. And do you feel like a free Christian this morning? Because you are. If you're in Christ, you're free. You're free to confess your sin for the grievous offense that it is. Then you're free to rejoice when you see that substitute standing in your place. The love of Christ for sinners is so amazing in Isaiah 53 because as we read about Christ's love in this way, He's kind of substituting himself in for us. In some ways, I think, like, as I was thinking about this this past week, I was thinking, I, I could do that. I mean, I could imagine myself doing something at least similar, right? So if someone threatened my kids or my wife, I hope I would have the courage to say, shoot me instead. I will substitute my life for them. I love them that much. Maybe some of you can feel that same way about your loved ones. Good. Now, how about your enemy? How about your enemy who is facing just punishment for his offense against you, for how he's hurt those you love? How about giving your life for him? Church, when Jesus came to die, we were his enemies. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he was born into enemy territory. Don't let the quaintness of the nativity scene dim your eyes to this massive mercy taking place at Advent. Jesus coming to bear the weakness and the sin of his most hateful enemies. Those like sheep gone astray. Him taking that straying, wandering, rebellious sin on himself. You see here Christ's humiliation and his substitution but then we also see a submission, our third point. And this, I think, church, this is where, as I was 
focusing on this text this week, this is where this text goes from amazing to incredible. And I mean that. Incredible as in like hard to believe. Because not only did Jesus humble himself to become weak like us, but this was always the plan. Not only did he give himself up for our sin as our substitute, but he did all of that because his father commanded him to. Look there in verse 4. Jesus was stricken, smitten, and afflicted. But who's the agent there? Who's the one laying this suffering on Christ? Smitten by God. And again in verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And again in verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush Jesus. Jesus didn't come to just kind of appease a general principle of of how we should live. No, he came, and Isaiah 53 forecasts it, so that he could die and take the judgment we deserved. Jesus didn't just come to take our sins, but he came to bear God's wrath for our sins. This is where we expand that, those kind of terms that we talked about earlier. Substitutionary, atonement, dying in place of one by the shedding of blood. And we add to the front of that penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus not only as substitute, but as substitute bearing penalty, bearing wrath. So many Christians deny this. Deny that word penal. It just doesn't seem right. Some call it Divine child abuse. God sending his son, innocent son, to to bear the wrath of his father? How evil is that God? No, church, how amazingly gracious is that God? This is not divine child abuse. This is an agreement between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit from before time to sacrificially Save. Robert Chisholm says, What appears to be an act of injustice is really love satisfying the demands of justice. And, and church, this is where the gospel, I think, just takes on more and more weight and glory for us. God, the creator and judge from before time, determining to send his beloved son to bear his wrath. And Jesus willingly agreeing to it. The judge becoming the judged. John Flavel, a Puritan pastor from the 17th century, engaged in a piece of sanctified imagination about this doctrine. Uh, He kind of guessed on what the conversation might have looked like between the Father and the Son as they arranged this salvation plan. Here's how the conversation may have gone. You can't find this in Scripture, but you can find it from the pen of a godly man. Father, my son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? Son, O my Father, such is my love to and pity for them that rather than they shall perish eternally, 
I will be responsible for them as their surety. Father, bring in all thy bills, that I may see what they owe thee. Lord, bring them all in, that there may be no after-reckonings with them. At my hand shall you require it. I will choose to suffer thy wrath, than that they should suffer it. Upon me, my Father, upon me be all their debt. Father, but my son, if, if thou undertake that for them, thou must reckon to pay the last penny. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare you. Son, content, Father. Let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it, and though it may prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches, empty all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. Church, do you see the love of the Father and the Son for you? This is the gospel according to Isaiah. Remember, it wasn't the physical suffering of the cross that made Jesus' death so unique. Thousands of people have been crucified. They still are around the world today. No, it was the bearing of God's wrath. The bearing of God's punishment on the cross that sets Jesus' crucifixion entirely apart. That cross was a, a courtroom with a verdict coming down hard. A, a death sentence for Jesus. This one who agreed to bear all the sins of God's people. And so seeing his submission to this, seeing God's execution of this plan, his justice, I think this just brings the gospel out of black and white into vivid technicolor. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to save you. Look at the lengths to which he went. Perhaps you're here and you're not a follower of Christ. We're grateful that you're here. We, we welcome you. But realize that according to Isaiah 53, the Lord's going to have to do something with your sin. He's a faithful judge. And if you look there at verse 6, it says, We all have gone like sheep astray. We've turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So either God the judge will lay your iniquity on Christ, or he will leave it laid on you. Which will you decide? Will you respond to Christ's work on your behalf? Will you repent and place your trust in him and have your sins washed away? The, the invitation's there for you. Talk to me afterwards. Talk to someone sitting next to you. We'd love to share this phenomenal news with you. And church family, do you see here the, the climax of God's storyline? Right, the tension is building there in the manger at Bethlehem. But the point of the story is still to come. If we see the manger without seeing the shadow of the cross cast across it, we miss this wonder of Christmas. Jesus came to die. He came to die and rise again in victory so that now we look forward to his second coming, his second advent, his final return, when he will come as this judge to save, to create a new heavens and a new earth. Christian, maybe you're familiar with this story. 
I hope you are. And so, so maybe it seems like old news. If that's you, I wonder, do you discipline yourself to meditate on Christ's humiliation, substitution, and submission? Is this gospel news kind of filed away in your filing cabinet under been there, done that, or I'm good to go? Or is it something that you open that cabinet and daily pull that file folder out and rehearse the gospel? Let it refresh your mind. Just enjoy dwelling upon it. Maybe this week leading up to Christmas Eve, you can take Isaiah 53 and all those places where you see we and our and us and just slot your name in there. And just put your name and relish and rejoice again in this truth that Jesus came to die for you. And Christian, perhaps you're struggling this Christmas season. Like we prayed before, it's not the most wonderful time of the year for you. You turn on the TV and go to the mall. You just see these glitzy commercials that present Christmas cheer and nostalgia. Hardly a glimmer of pain. And maybe that is the season that you're in right now. That's great. Soak it up. Sentimentality and nostalgia at Christmas are good gifts from God. But some of you, maybe you just realize that's not my life anymore. For me, there's family conflict. There's financial struggle. There's illness. There's the loss of a loved one who used to be at the table with us. All is not well at Christmas. Well, Christian, if that's you, take heart. Remember that your joy is not rooted in a little baby in a manger only, but it's rooted in a man who grew up to satisfy the law's demands and then hung on the cross for your salvation. In fact, I wonder if you're struggling and suffering this Christmas season, if you're not able to understand Christmas a little bit better than the rest of us. It's not about surface joy. It's about deep salvation. Trevin Wax writes, the reason we hope for the grand finale at the end of history is because a little baby born in Bethlehem, flanked by animals and laid in a splintery manger, grew up to be the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He knew suffering, not from a distance, but up close. He didn't come to give us an answer to satisfy all our questions. He gave us himself to satisfy all our hurts, to take away our sins, to wipe away our tears, to strip away our sorrows. Church, behold that Christ and rejoice. Let's pray. Oh Lord, how quick we are to forget what the cross means. how you humbled yourself, Lord Jesus. That would have been news enough. But then you substituted yourself for us. That would have been even better news. But then you took the full cup of wrath from your Father's hand and 
We're willing to be separated from the love of your Father so that we might never know a day without being loved by this God. Lord, we are humbled. We are awed. We are grateful as we contemplate this suffering servant. Lord, we ask that for those who know this story well, would you bless us this Christmas with even deeper knowledge of what this means and a deeper commitment to run from sin and to find our rest in you. And for those of us here who maybe have heard this before, maybe not, but don't understand the joy of following the Savior, would you bring them to yourself? We love you, Lord. Amen.